Uh, If you would, uh, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be in verses 37 through 41 uh, this morning as we finish out the last bit of of Peter's Peter's first sermon here on the day of Pentecost. Uh, If you're able, would you stand with me as we read from this part of God's Word? Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated. you pray with me. Our Father, as we now open your word, we pray that the eyes of our hearts may be enlightened so that we may comprehend with all of your people what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge so that we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. And so we pray your spirit would shine his light and would illumine our hearts and minds to receive your word with faith and love, to lay it up in our hearts, to practice it in our lives, all for your glory. And we pray that you would help us to see Jesus and to respond appropriately. For we ask it in his name. Amen. Uh, In one of the most uh, famous conversations in the Gospels, Uh, There's a a night scene in the Gospel of John that we're probably all familiar with. Jesus has an interaction with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. He is uh, secretly following Jesus, believing, beginning to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he is the Messiah. And as Jesus begins to talk with Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, uh, Jesus begins to explain to him why he's come and, and what's required for those who would enter and see the kingdom of God. And he tells Nicodemus that it's a mystery, that in order to see and to enter into the kingdom of God, one must be born again and that this work is a work of the Spirit. And he gives this analogy as he talks about the work of the Spirit bringing about new birth, new life for those who did not have it before. He says that the work of the Spirit is like the wind. Uh, the wind. The wind blows. You don't see where it's coming from. You don't see where it's going. Uh, but you see the fruit of it. You see the effect of the wind as it perhaps moves through the trees. You can't see the wind itself, but you see its effect on the trees as the leaves uh, move about at the wind's movement. He says the work of the Spirit is like that as well. The Spirit comes, he, he moves as he will, and, and where he goes, he brings new life, and you only see his work by the fruit of it. 
you see the effect of the work of the Holy Spirit in the fruit of people's lives. What we see, what we've been seeing in this part of the book of Acts, this, this day of Pentecost and Peter's sermon, what we're seeing is the Spirit's work and the fruit of the Spirit's work among the people gathered there in Jerusalem. We see the Spirit's effect in changed lives. We begin to see the mighty work of the Spirit of God in the book of Acts. You see it in kind of unique and non-repeatable ways. For example, in the, the divided tongues coming down upon the heads of the apostles and giving this supernatural gift of, of speaking in different languages. This happens at different points in the book of Acts, but we're, we're not to expect that to be an ongoing thing in the life of the church. It's not repeatable. Uh, but you also see things that are to be repeated, are to be the established pattern of the life of the church. And we see that particularly in our passage today in the response that Peter calls for uh, among those who hear his first sermon. Peter, as he preaches the sermon, calls for a response in those who hear. And it's the same response that we all ought to give as we hear the word of God and hear the gospel proclaimed. Namely, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, repentance of our sin, and faith in the promises of God. It's the same for us today. Let's look uh, briefly, let's kind of review where we are and how we got here before we look at uh, the consequence, the implications of Peter's message for us today. So just a brief review, because this is kind of a climactic point of this, this scene in the book of Acts. Jesus had spent time with his disciples. He had risen from the dead. He had appeared to them over the course of 40 days, teaching them concerning the kingdom of God telling them to wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit who would come upon them in Jerusalem. They've waited, and now the day has come. The Holy Spirit has been poured out upon them and uh, has demonstrated God's work among them through this supernatural gift of speaking in different languages, testifying that this is God's work. Amidst confusion and some mocking from those who were gathered there who heard this noise of their speaking in tongues, uh, Peter begins to preach his first sermon to this crowd of Jews and, and Gentiles gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. And, and it's a multi-point sermon. He says that the Holy Spirit that they're seeing being poured out is the fulfillment of prophecy. He preaches from the book of Joel, saying that this is the beginning of the last days, the age of salvation. And then he preaches from the Bible about Jesus. He looks at Psalm 16 and references 2 Samuel and Psalm 110 and says, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He's, he's the long-prophesied Redeemer who was to come. And that's evidenced by the fact that he died, he was buried, and he is risen again from the dead. And we all, Peter says, have seen him. We're all witnesses to his resurrection. He preaches about who Jesus is and what he has done. The crowd responds with conviction. They're pierced in their hearts, and they have a question. What are we supposed to do? What, what must we do with all of this information? Now that we know this, we can't unknow it. What are we supposed to do? How must we respond? Peter applies his message to them. The Holy Spirit, through that, converts uh, and saves 3,000 people, adds them, about 3,000 people, adds them to the church 
that day. Just, just as a side note, this pattern ought to sound somewhat familiar to us. Preach a sermon from the Bible about Jesus. You seek to apply it and call for a response, and God does the work in our hearts. This, this is what the church has been doing now for nearly 2,000 years, preaching the Bible, proclaiming Christ, and calling people to faith and repentance and trusting the Lord to cause the growth. So this is, this is how we've gotten to where we are in this part of the passage. And I want you to notice just a few things as we look at this final part of Peter's sermon and his interaction with the crowd there. First, I want you to notice resurrection demands a response. Resurrection demands a response. Notice verse 37. Jesus, uh, Peter rather, has proclaimed Christ, crucified and risen. He's laid it out before this crowd saying, you're the ones who crucified him. And this generates a response. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brethren, what must we do? You see, you cannot be neutral to the resurrection. You you cannot respond to this objective fact of history with apathy or with indifference. Uh, You know, maybe sometimes we approach these stories in the Bible the same way we might approach an entertaining book or an entertaining movie. You know, we watch it, maybe we're enthralled with it, we're engaged in the story, the narrative is interesting, the climax is unexpected, the way things resolve is surprising, and then what do we do? Well, we walk out of the movie theater and we go about our lives completely unchanged. And sometimes we approach the Bible like that. Well, this is a great story. This is really interesting that these things happen to these people. But, but part of the point of Peter's sermon here is that this fact of history, that Jesus rose from the dead as the fulfillment of prophecy and something that they were eyewitnesses to, cannot be ignored cannot be treated as just another trivial piece of of entertainment or just another story that we enjoy telling ourselves. We have to respond. Listen, there are thousands, perhaps more, historical facts that require from us no response, no settled opinion, no evaluation. This is not one of them. This is the one historical fact that we all must reckon with. We all must deal with the resurrection of Jesus. You cannot remain indifferent to it, apathetic to it. The resurrection of Jesus is the confirming proof that he is the Son of God, that he is the long-promised Savior of mankind. And if he is who he claims to be, That demands a response from us. There's a story that's told about a trapeze artist, kind of a a daredevil. You've probably heard the story before. He was um, endeavoring to to carry out this great feat of walking across a tightrope at Niagara Falls from one point to another, which I think had been done before, but he was adding an element to it uh, that was going to make his, his attempt unique. He was going to push kind of a wheelbarrow across, a cart. So walk across this tightrope, pushing the wheelbarrow uh, as, he, as he went. This added a little bit of excitement to the endeavor. And so he had a whole crowd gathered at Niagara Falls and was explaining to them what he was going to do. And he kept asking the crowd, kind of drumming up enthusiasm, 
do you think I can do it? Do you think I can do it? And of course, they're all enthusiastically saying, yes, we know you can do it. And he says, great, who's going to get in the cart? <laughs> Nobody raised their hand. We can't respond to the resurrection like that. We can't say, oh, this is great, this is great, this is great. But, uh, not for me. The resurrection demands a response from us. And let, me, let me just speak to um, our, our young people for a moment. You know, when you get to the point where you have to say, let me speak to our young people, you realize that that has placed you in a separate category <laughs> from that. I'm still dealing with that in my heart. I want to encourage you um, to consider now the importance of responding to this good news of the resurrection of Jesus, to respond to it early, and, and to do so with confidence, with a sense of certainty that it is right and true that Jesus rose from the dead, that he is who he claims to be, that there really is forgiveness of sins through Christ, that he died and rose again for you, and that believing in him, there is confidence in that. Now, I want you to do that early because uh, this will help you later. Many of you are growing up in a Christian home. Uh, you, you are coming to a church where the Bible is believed and, and taught, which is a wonderful blessing. And so you're in a place in a time where it is easy uh, in a sense, it's easy to accept these things because you are often not challenged otherwise. Uh, hopefully, you don't have anybody here in the church saying, I'm not really sure about this whole Jesus thing. I'm not really confident about this whole resurrection story. I, I don't think we have anybody here saying that. And that's becoming less and less common in the world, right? You're, you're going you're gonna to go to school. You're going to go to college. You're going to be in the workplace. You're going to develop friendships among people who probably are going to think that the resurrection of Jesus is a ridiculous thing to believe in. Let's just be frank about that. Uh, it's not normal in the world to believe that people rise from the dead. There's a reason for that. It only happened once to Jesus in this way. It's unique because he is unique. My point is, you will find yourself often in places where this belief is challenged. You'll encounter some who think, the story of Christ is not true, that the Bible is not true, that the resurrection can't be true. And if you haven't embraced this for yourself with, with confidence that God is true, that his word is true, that Jesus really is risen from the dead, never to die again, and, and that there's life in him for you, uh, then that challenge will be much more difficult for you. And so I want to encourage you not to approach that now with a sense of uh, kind of apathetic acceptance, if you will. Like accepting it, yes, that's true, that, that's, that makes sense, I'll believe that, but then it makes no impact on your life. It, it doesn't drive you from the core of who you are. It's perhaps just one other belief among a set of contradictory beliefs that you may hold. Accept it. Trust in Jesus. Commit yourself to it now. And as these challenges come, don't be ashamed to bring those questions to parents, to your pastors, to Christians whom you trust. I'll, I'll say this, maybe just as a way of summing it up, uh, this, this particular point. There are no new challenges to the resurrection of Jesus. There just simply aren't. Every, every challenge that comes up 
questioning the authority of the Bible, questioning the reality of Jesus risen from the dead, it's all being rehashed. We've had millennia of these challenges. There, there's no new challenges. But there are always new people who are hearing them for the first time. And so I want to encourage you, as you hear these challenges to the truth of the gospel, don't be ashamed, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, my encouragement to you is come to terms with those claims now. Uh, figure out, consider your response to the claims of Christ now uh, at, a, at a young age so that when those struggles come, you won't be thrown off course too much. Resurrection demands a response. Uh, you must choose, if you will, to get in the wheelbarrow or not. There is no indifference to the resurrection of Jesus. It is a, an objective reality. But Peter specifically here zeroes in on a specific response and really on the only right response that we can have to the good news of the resurrection of Jesus. Notice the crowd hears Peter saying who Jesus is, what he did, and then here's Peter saying, you crucified him, and, and they're pierced to the heart. It's, it's a metaphorical way of describing emotional distress at what they have heard, and they can't unhear it. They can't deny what Peter is saying. They saw Jesus's works. They know that they were the ones crying out for his crucifixion. They know that he died, and then they see the evidence of God's work and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the disciples here, and, and they hear Peter, and it says they're pierced to the heart. They're convicted. Now, this is not repentance. This is conviction, and, and they don't know what to do, so they ask, what shall we do? And Peter, Peter tells them very simply, repent. Repent. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. There's a whole lot there that I'm not going to talk about. We're not going to talk about the mode of baptism. We're not going to talk about the relationship between baptism and forgiveness of sins and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to talk about any of that right now. All I want to talk about in the time that we have remaining is repentance. Repentance. Everywhere the gospel is preached, the aim of that preaching is repentance. And so it's important for us to know what it is, and it's important for us to do it, uh, to respond rightly to the resurrection. So let's talk for a moment about repentance. This is a church word. This is a, this is a word we talk about in church. If you say this out in public among your friends who don't go to church, you talk about how much you repent, they're going to be scratching their heads. Well, what are you talking about? This is a church word, so let's talk about what repentance is means. I've just got five, five ways to help us understand repentance here. Uh, first, just to point out that repentance and faith always go together, even when they're not both mentioned at the same time, which is the case here. Peter just says repent and be baptized. He doesn't say repent and believe. But anytime one is spoken of, believing or repenting, the other is implied. Uh, it's it, two sides of the same coin. They go uh, together like uh, love and marriage, if you will. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. Or you could think about it this way. Repentance is always a believing repentance. And faith is always a repentant faith. They, they go together. They define and characterize one another. So repentance and faith always go together. Well, what, what is repentance? Very simply, 
Repentance is a radical, whole life turning away from sin and toward God in faith. It's, it's the turning of the whole life in a radical way from your heart, from the root, the core of who you are, away from sin and to God in faith. In the Old Testament, the two words that are most often used for repentance, one of them literally means to turn or to return. You know, you've been going away from God, and now you're returning. You're coming back to him. The other word in the Old Testament uh, simply means to be sorry, to have sorrow or grief over sin, something you've done. And so those two things go together. There's grief, there's sorrow, and then there's a turning away from sin unto God. In the New Testament, the two words that are used for repentance, uh, one of them, the one used here, simply means to change your mind. Uh, to have a change of mind, uh, not just a change of heart, but in the New Testament, a change of mind. And the other word that's used means to have a changed life. You've turned the direction of your life around. So you see the, the picture here. Repentance is turning of, of the whole life away from sin and unto God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism describes repentance this way. Repentance unto life is a saving grace, comes from God, whereby a sinner, out of a true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, does with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. You hear those two things going on at the same time. It's turning away from sin, you grieving over it, hating it, but also apprehending the mercy of God in Christ, there's faith involved in it as well. A true sense of sin and a true sense of the mercy of God and then the resulting changed life, endeavoring after new obedience. So repentance is the whole life turning away from sin and to God in faith. One writer has described repentance as both the doorway and the path of the Christian life. It's the way in and it's the way onward. It's the way you begin, and it's the way you continue. John Calvin describes it as a race of repentance, and that the whole of the Christian life is to be a life of repentance. It's not just something you do one time, in other words. And you can think about it like this. You go to a wedding, and uh, amidst all of the festivities and the beauty of, of, of modern weddings, there's really only one important thing going on at a wedding, the vows. At, at the center of the whole ceremony are these sacred vows that a husband and a wife take to love one another no matter what, to stick together no matter what comes their way. Uh, if you can think about it, uh, a marriage doesn't just start with those vows and then leave them behind, right? Those vows are meant to characterize the whole of the marriage. I've heard, heard one person describe uh, marriage vows as one big yes and then a thousand little yeses. And, and you can think about repentance in that same way. It's one big turning. My, my whole life is now being turned toward God and away from my sin, I'm no longer serving sin. I'm no longer a slave to it. I'm no longer the master of my own life. I have turned all of myself to God and submitted to him in faith. And then I'm going to live that out. 
It's one big turning and then a thousand little turnings all along the way. It's both the door and the path of the Christian life. Repentance, not only the door and the path, repentance leads to joy. Repentance leads to joy. Because in repentance, we embrace the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. This is what marks repentance uh, as different from remorse or simply regret. There are instances in the Bible of sinners who experience deep regret over their sin. I'll give you two, Judas and Cain. Not the examples that we're often encouraged to follow in the Bible. Judas had regret. He, he regretted that he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver, but he did not have repentance. He did not have repentance. Why? Because he could not embrace the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a whole lot of mystery to that, that that we don't have to understand to be able to see that Judas's regret was not repentance. Certainly, I think it's clear with Cain as well when he killed his brother Abel. Repentance is different from regret because regret is self-centered. Regret is all about, I feel bad because I did this thing, but there's no joy because there's no seeking God and embracing forgiveness from Jesus Christ. John Calvin describes the difference between these two as the difference between a law repentance and a gospel repentance. In law repentance, we may dread the judgment of God for things that we have done, but we do not rest in his forgiveness of those things. There's simply dread and terror. But in gospel repentance, there is both the fear of God and the joy of his forgiveness. You see this in David. As, as in contrast to Saul. Saul sins. He won't admit it. The Lord removes his Holy Spirit from Saul, and, and that's, that's the end of that story in many ways. David sins um, in horrible ways with Bathsheba and, and putting her husband to death and lying and covering. I mean, all of these things that David engages in, they're all clearly sin. And he doesn't immediately acknowledge it. He, he continues on this road of covering it up. And then when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, uh, David sees his sin for what it is. He confesses it. And Nathan immediately says to him, the Lord has forgiven you your sin. And as David writes about that, he says, um, sacrifices you do not desire, a burnt offering you do not desire, but a broken heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. These bones that you have crushed in conviction of sin, make them to sing with joy again in your forgiveness. And help me to tell others, he says, that there's forgiveness with you. Repentance leads us to joy because it leads us to the knowledge of God's forgiveness of us in Jesus Christ. Uh, we've seen this in the Children's Challenge over the last several weeks. Those of you who've come up and answered all these questions about these three stories, about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son and the loving father, there's a theme that connects all of those stories, and it's the joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. 
There's rejoicing. There's joy when there is repentance because there is an embracing of the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ for all those who repent. Repentance leads us to joy. And finally, the repentant heart. The repentant heart is the heart that God loves because it's the heart that God gives. It's the new heart, the heart that is convicted over sin and runs to Jesus, and the heart that through repentance is brought into the community of God's people, which is what the reference to baptism indicates. That we're brought into a people, a community, that belongs to Jesus Christ and is characterized by repentance and faith and the forgiveness of sins. There's only one right response to the resurrection, to the good news of what Jesus has done, that he died for sinners and he rose again from the dead and that there's salvation offered to all in his name. The only right response is repentance and faith in his promises. As we close, let me just make two, two points of application for us. Uh, for those who are perhaps skeptical of these things, not yet accepting this good news of repentance and faith in Jesus. If you've not responded to the message of Christ, what do you do with the resurrection of Christ? How, how do you reckon with the reality that Jesus rose again from the dead, that these were all witnesses to his resurrection? They saw him, they met with him, they could testify that he was indeed alive from the dead. What do we do with the resurrection of Jesus. And secondly, what do you do with your conviction of things that are wrong, things that you do or things that you see in the world? There's real evil in the world. You can't, you can't deny it. I don't think any of us can. What do you do with the conviction of those things that are wrong? Jesus's resurrection can't be ignored. It confirms the truth of who he is as the son of God and the savior of all mankind. And it leads us to hope in the good news that there is real forgiveness for all those who would trust in him, who would submit their lives to him, that there is real hope for forgiveness when we respond in faith. If you haven't responded in faith, why, why not? Come to him. He will welcome you. He will not cast you out. For those of you who are already Christians who have believed these things and received them for yourself, um, two points here as we close. First, the gospel frees us to be bold repenters of sin. It, it frees us from the unending and vicious cycle of pretending that there's not something wrong with us. Or I don't think I got that right. You know what I'm saying. It keeps us from pretending. Because in the gospel, we have good news that we have righteousness and that that righteousness is not because of things that we've done. We have righteousness in Jesus. His righteousness covers over our sin perfectly. And we are accepted in the beloved son as though we had done all the things that Jesus has done. His righteousness is perfect and it is for you. And you didn't contribute to it. You didn't add 50% to Jesus's 50%. You didn't add 5% to his 90%. You didn't add 0.01. You didn't add anything of your righteousness to his righteousness. It's all his. And by faith, it's yours. 
because he gives it to you as a gift. And if that's true, if your standing with God is not based on things that you have done to contribute to that, but is based on the righteousness of Christ alone, then that frees us from having to pretend that we've got it all together, that we know all the right answers, that we've done all the right things. We haven't. None of us has. And in a certain sense, if you'll understand the context here, in a certain sense, that's okay. Because Jesus has done it all for you. His righteousness is for you, and it is enough. So we can be bold repenters. We, we can quickly say, I was wrong, which is really hard. I was wrong. I sinned. Will you forgive me? Both to God and to others. With the sure and certain hope and expectation of God's forgiveness, the joy that that brings. We can be bold repenters because God's grace is for us. We can also be, I was going to say bold changers, but that doesn't really sound right. We can change. We can change. We change through repentance. Uh, You should not and cannot remain the same when you've encountered the risen Jesus. And that change comes through ongoing, through the door, down the path, repentance, day in and day out. That's the way Jesus remakes us in his image, is through our ongoing repentance, confessing our sin and seeking to live for him and no longer for ourselves. And then finally, which is the third time I've said finally, if you've been keeping count. (laughs) Finally... The church, so that's thinking about you individually and how the gospel frees you, but the church uh, as the body of Christ, the church as the community of God's people, this is the place where faith and repentance ought to be the dominant tone of our life together. Uh, We ought to be a, a people in a place where it is safe and right to say, I've sinned. Will you forgive me? Will you help me to follow Jesus faithfully and well. It ought to be a place, uh, the church as the people of God, we ought to be a place where repentance and faith are pervasive and, and shape and color all that we do. We are not about the work of making our name great by pretending to be something we are not. We are about the work of making the name of Jesus great by acknowledging what we really are and how much we need him. And how gracious and all-sufficient he is for us in the gospel. If if we are, by God's grace, a church that is characterized by that and Jesus is glorified, then, then he will cause fruitfulness in ways that we can't dictate, manufacture, or generate because he will be the one doing the work. And that is that is what we desire. And so may we be a people whose individual lives, whose life together as a community is characterized pervasively by humble repentance, a longing for holiness, and a firm belief that there is forgiveness with God because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Would you pray with me?